One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey Dave, yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas, absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. One, two, three. They all come from the unknown north. Talent, drive, and a pride worth paying for. But just because they're above the 49th parallel, it doesn't mean we shouldn't celebrate them just as well. So give it up to these canucks, because our self-promotion sucks. And if they all went away, we sure would miss them. Canadian Star System. Hello and welcome back to the Canadian Star System podcast, where we shine the spotlight on Canadian stars known around the world, and they shine their spotlight on other Canadians that are stars in their own right and that we have no right not knowing more about. I'm your host, Steve Patterson, and if you'd like to know more about me, visit Wikipedia. That's how I do my research. With me, as always, is someone that I learn more about whenever we talk like a beautiful layered onion or other thing with layers. It's Diana Francis. Hi, Diana. <laughs> Hello, Steve Patterson. I just realized calling you an onion might not be seen as a compliment, but I, I meant it as a compliment. You are a multi-layered personality. I shall take it as a compliment, even though I really, really do not like onions. Yeah, you know, neither do yeah. I. Yeah. Unless that. they're onion rings. I like onion rings. Well, of course. It's, it's deep fried. It's yeah. deep fried. It's just That's a the secret. vehicle yeah, I, for the batter. I will literally eat anything that's deep fried, and that's why I'm popular in Scotland. Listen, in the interest of transparency and sharing more info with each other and our listeners that we may not have known about each other, I would like you to share with me, and I think this is good going into today's guest, your rock star name. If you had a rock star name, what would it be? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, well, my name is Diana Francis. A lot of people call me D-Rock. Or D Fran or Francie Pants. Um, although I think Francie Pants would be good if I was like a rock star in the children's performance world. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Ladies I've and gentlemen, welcome to the outfit. stage, Francie Pants. And the kids she, go wild. Here she is, her fourth Anne of Green Gables review. It's Francie Pants. <laughs> and what about you? What would your rock star name be? Steve Patterson, not a real rock star quality to it. 
I'm going to go with the one that it, there's somebody currently using it, but all, all Latino. I wish I was Latino because Latinos are just, they're just cooler in every way. So my rock star name is currently out there. It's Enrique Iglesias. And uh, <laughs> I, whenever I could tell someone I'm Enrique Iglesias, they got to be pretty drunk to believe it. But I just like the way it rolls off the lips. Enrique Iglesias, which actually translates to Eric Church, which is another guy's famous guy's name. Did you know that? I did not know that. And what I particularly love about all of this is when I think rock star, I never think Enrique Iglesias. Like that is not his genre of actual music. Really? Francie Pants? You going to come at me with nitpicking of the genre that we picked for Fair rock enough. star? Fair hey, enough. It's Francie Pants. You win this round. All right. That's enough about us. Let's get to the name of our first featured guest today, shall we? He has been a name on the Canadian music scene since even I was a relatively young man. Releasing his first album in 2001, he has prolifically released almost an album a year since then. A multi-instrumentalist and producer, he's no stranger to getting all the jobs done all by himself and is not only a poet, but a playwright as well. He used to see anger as beauty, even when looking at almost a full moon, but these days he's less rage and more tears. Fitting in fun at every turn because it's not all just work, man. He's Hoxley Workman. <laughs> hey, Steve. Since we last spoke, my friend, you have moved to Peterborough, Ontario. And is that where you're coming to us from now? I'm in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. Yes, that's where mm -hmm. I'm coming to you from right now. And I love it here. I wish everyone could see the room that I'm seeing because it is, that is the quintessential Musicians, musician studio. There are several guitars. There's a reel-to-reel -reel yep. machine. We got keyboards. <laughs> yep. We got drums. You are ready at any time to make a musical, aren't you? Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can make a musical. I can. I can play rock music. I can play a beat. I can play a Beatles classic. I just need, in a moment's notice, I can put that together. In this room, it is ready to go. We were talking about this before this thing started to air. So to uh, <laughs> to share it with our listeners, I guess we'll say it again. You were very much hands-on in the building of your studio, right? I saw it documented on social media. Thank you for illuminating that yes. point. Yes, I was involved. I don't mind getting my hands dirty. Of course not. I had a friend help me who was really the brains and the real muscle behind the organization. I worked a little bit of construction when I was a young man, and I was what they call a breather on the site. <laughs> I don't like, you know what, I'm not afraid of tools and I'm really grateful for my, my stint in construction. It makes one realize that one just needs to show up to a situation, a job with a little bit of common sense, the right tools, and there's nothing to be afraid of. I didn't know the conversation was going to start like this, but this is something we've never started a conversation with a musician before about construction. And I love it. I love that you are not afraid to get yeah. your hands dirty, that you're not afraid to yep. breathe on stuff, obviously. Yeah. Do you think that more <laughs> artists should do more of the trades, more of the trade skills and labor to get an appreciation for that work and to be able to build their own spaces down the road? Yeah, I think now, if I could go back and talk to the teenage version of myself, mm -hmm. you know, I was sort of in the academic stream as a kid. And I think too, like, your guidance counselors and teachers are kind of saying like, hey, you know, don't you dare go and take an auto course or whatever. And now, of course, as soon as I got spat out the end of the of the academic system and got into my real life of being a rock and roll guy, boy, could I have used all those skills, you know? And I think, I don't think that really any of those skills should just be like, oh, if you're thinking of going to university, you don't need to know how to fix a car. I'd be like, no, no, no. 
honestly, this should be requisite stuff. And I feel more empowered. I think that there's a lot of stuff that you cannot know in the world. And I find like if I live in a house where I don't know how things work, I'm always tense. Like, <laughs> you know, it's this pool heater. How does this thing work? <laughs> Who do I call to fix this thing? How does it, how do you turn it on? You know? <laughs> well, thanks for describing my life exactly. <laughs> Except that we don't have a pool. Let's talk about Peterborough a little bit because, you know, Toronto Ooh. is uh, one of the most expensive places in the, certainly in the country, maybe in the world. And yeah. a lot of artists were losing them to outside of the city's confines because uh, things mm. are just more affordable there. What's the art scene like in Peterborough these days? I feel like I've met a lot of really talented people here, like a lot and a lot of very talented young people. You know, I, I kind of made it a mission of mine as soon as we were allowed to sort of roam amongst ourselves uh, with the COVID restrictions being relaxed. I went out of my way to meet as many local young rockers as possible. And I'm blown away. I mean, I was always told, oh, Peterborough's a music town. And I mean, I don't know if it is or isn't. I couldn't confirm one way or the other. And But now I live here and I'm really surprised at the amount of talented people there are. And you're right. It's sad. I think about Toronto a lot. When I, you know, I dreamed of moving to Toronto as a kid growing up in north of Huntsville. And my dad would, you know, we would drive down to Toronto to go to Sam the Record Man and just drums on Young Street. I had already started to romanticize this idea of going to Toronto, but Toronto has other ideas for itself. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that like being a hotbed for artists is necessarily what Toronto sees as its, its plans for the future, which is fine. That's how cities work. Cities are, you know, living, breathing organisms. They're just marketplaces. You know, if you want to try and sell your goods to more people, go to where more people are and more people are in cities. But certain people are no longer required in those cities, like the artists to make certain dodgy neighborhoods look cool. Once <laughs> we knew that, then we're like, thank you, because we couldn't tell if this was a cool place or not. But now that you said that it is, we're going to move in and prop up the property values. We're going to blow it up. Thanks again. Uh, Have a nice time at Peterborough. Buddy, you really do speak the truth. And again, you've described my neighborhood perfectly. I'm in the uh, junction of Toronto. Yeah. A lot of artists still here, a lot of musicians, writers, you, you know what artists are. One arsehole <laughs> with a podcast by a train track. And at the end of my street, they're currently putting up two condos. In downtown Toronto, Second City is now either moving or not moving to its third location because they were bought out and they're turning into condos. The Yuck Yucks Comedy Club downtown is soon going to become condos. It just seems like, as you say, they're getting more and more people in here to live, but what kind of a life is it really without art? Can accounting be that fun to everybody? <laughs> I don't think it can. Are there just people comparing numbers to each other and that's their art now? I'm getting a little sad and sidetracked. This wasn't the question I was going <laughs> to ask, but how do we save the cities with art, Mr. Workman? I don't know, because I don't know if cities need saving. I just think that we have to get more tuned into the idea that change is inevitable and that Things that we used to love may go away one day and that we're going to have to fall in love with new stuff, even if it feels like the new stuff isn't as cool as the old stuff. And like I've gone through a decade or more of lamenting <laughs> the changes in Toronto. And honestly, I think, too, like, you know, I'm a grump. I'm a, <laughs> often a misanthrope. I'm difficult to be around. <laughs> Did you guys get my birthday invites? By the way? <laughs> I am looking forward to your series of greeting cards, though. You know what? I feel like I spent that chunk of time in my life that most, you know, teens through their 20 somethings in that beautiful righteousness of 
being able to point at everything and tell you what's wrong with it. And then something happens in your 40s where it's like, oh, yeah, like I better like stop pointing at what's wrong and just get down to the the heady business of living my life. Because quite honestly, like I can be disappointed in anything. I mean, I feel like I <laughs> I rest in a near constant state of being disappointed with myself. So and I set a fairly high bar and then I kind of just look at the rest of the world. I'm like, I'll get to you later. I just got to be the idiot I see in the goddamn mirror, you know? <laughs> I feel like I got the answers. I feel like I could just wander into Toronto and go, and go nope. Everybody sit right down. I'm telling you how to fix this place. But Toronto doesn't care. And I think that's the other thing too. Like I feel as artists, our relevance is like a dividend stock that we just hope to keep, keep getting paid dividends so we can reinvest in our relevance, you know? And I think that when you are engaged with the idea of your own relevance, as we have to be in Canada sometimes as artists, because it's, there's just not a big enough star system to support. So you kind of got to be your biggest advocate. And, and once you start engaging in that advocacy, you, you know, you're always walking around with the placard of I'm pretty wicked. You should know around hung around your neck, right? And now I'm like, oh, I'm tired of that, too. So I think that I'm just going to complain less. You talk about being a grump, a misanthrope. Buddy, I got to say, of all the musicians in Canada that keep churning out so much great work, you have the most sense of uh, whimsy. You have sense of humor. It might be dark humor sometimes, but you've got a sense of humor in there. You're calling the fat cats on their on their misgivings. And I got to say, I, I really think you're a storyteller in the vein of like a Stuart McLean, God rest his soul, that could take any situation, make a story out of it and find the humor in it. So on my other show, I don't get to have a point of view and debate people, but I'm calling you and I'm calling <laughs> bullshit that you're a grudge. I think that you use that to bring people joy with your sense of humor. So how important is that to you to have that wit and sense of whimsy in your music? Well, Steve, you're a doll for saying all that. And, you know, you and I, I feel like have chatted before about my love of comedy. And honestly, like sometimes when I get asked that question of like, oh, who are your biggest influences? Of course, the, the musical ones come to mind first, but very shortly thereafter, it's Gary Larson, Jerry Seinfeld, David Letterman, the kids in the hall. And I feel like my disdain or disappointment in people and the world and, and how we tend to so often do the wrong thing over and over again. I guess, you know, you're a comedian, so you get it. Like, and you probably are around those comedians and those dark spirits, and we're all trying to manage. Frankly, I'm tired of living with the mind that has, you know, that I that has been nurtured into being the person I am in this moment at 46 years old. I'm tired of being disappointed at everything. I'm tired. Mm. I don't even watch the news anymore. I can't stomach it. I don't turn the radio on. I expose myself to the goings on of the planet as little as possible. You flick Twitter on Twitter. What a place to just instantly get angry at everything. And so I appreciate what you're saying. And I feel like it's so funny. Somebody else the other day, I, I had played a live show and it, uh, my old, old piano teacher from way back said, well, up there, you still are at, can access the inner child. And I was like, what the hell did you see? But I, I think given what he said and given kind of what you're saying, I think that that is just a place where we as performers and we as people who like who like stories and who like funny things and funny people, as long as there is some steady influx, inflow of brilliant people for me to just kind of like reengage with my faith in humanity. I just like real brilliant people. 
So once I meet one of them, I'm like, ah, thank God. <laughs> let's have more of you. You know, let's have you around. You I know? mean, I, I think that's what Diana's experience is working with me. So I, pres- I appreciate that. <laughs> we were talking about that. That's what we were talking about. Oh, yeah. You bring nothing but joy. Joy and laughter to my working life, Steve Patterson. <laughs> yeah. Spoken like I haven't cut out of this conversation three times already for my technical inabilities. Let's jump to your 2020 album. We're going to jump around here. I'm going to Tarantino this interview. Less rage. More tears, yeah. which is sort of along the lines of what we're talking about. I don't, you know, you don't, yeah, yeah. you don't want to be as angry before you want to let those emotions out, which I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've known you to ever have an issue with letting your emotions out. It's just maybe they're different emotions now. What was it like releasing an album in 2020, which was a tough year to get anything out there, but obviously can't tour. You got to do something. Did you have all these songs at the ready to be released anyway? Or did you, yeah. was, was it completed in pandemic or what? No, all this was ready. It was recorded and written in Montreal. The, the plan to release was already in place. And then the pandemic just came along. It didn't even bother to check in, see if we could reschedule. And, uh, <laughs> How rude. Yeah, unreal. And, it, you know, it was what it was. I mean, the thing is, is that for me, not that this record was an afterthought. It wasn't. And I love it. But I saw other friends of mine who hadn't released records in 10 years or long stretches of time whose you know, they were ostensibly making their quote unquote comeback, you know, and they were the ones who within the first few weeks of the pandemic, watching them cancel tours and just seeing all of the assets that were in place to sell a record. And we were already selling a widget nobody really wants. You know, music isn't as integral to people's lives. Even this morning when I was in the gym and I was going through my Spotify and what Spotify suggests for me now is like, it puts podcasts way above music because I think that's just tends to be what I invest in. And so here you're selling a widget nobody wants at a time when it becomes extra hard to sell this widget. And and then what an extraordinary disappointment bordering on humiliating because it's like, ah, like I was already getting my spirit ready to push this rock up a hill just to find that they, you know, they made the hill three times as long with this bloody bug. Now I can't go and meet people on face to face. And I wonder too, I think about performers and I wonder how we're going to evolve. I I still see a lot of fear on Twitter. A lot of people, whether it's Stockholm syndrome or just a genuine like fear of, I don't know, but people don't, there still seems to be quite a few people, at least from Twitter that are like, we got to stay inside until, I don't know, like if there's a D-Day or Lloyd Robertson comes on and tells us that it's all done and we can all go back into the streets. I don't think we're going to get there. Well, particularly because I think he's been retired for a while. <laughs> well, we'd have to get him out of retirement if there was some sort of like COVID day. I'm just, well, I guess what I'm saying is I've been feeling exasperated lately because I'm like, wow, I feel like not just me getting out and playing shows and trying to connect with audiences again. I still feel that's important. I think it's important, but I think there's still some hills to climb here. I'm still not feeling necessarily that everybody is going to be right ready to flick the switch, go on to life as we knew it before the pandemic. And I don't, I don't know whether, sorry, this is not getting to any point other than I've been thinking a lot about performance. Does it matter? Do people really want this thing? I'm seeing that what we are tending towards as a culture is changing. And we are a screen oriented people. So like those Netflix people make it pretty convincing to stay home, you know, and and when you've got a virus that's out there, like, you know, floating around in the wind or whatever, a second good reason to stay home. You and I have been out 
working our faces off the last 20 plus years to get people to leave their home. Right. It's a little counterintuitive to people right now still. Yeah. And so it's like, I don't know how necessary what I do is, you know, like I think too, as we in the arts community, you know, we get bruises on our backs from patting each other on our backs so much about, oh, great job. You're doing great. And I love this. And I know within the echo chamber of our own community, we're important to one another. We're important to keep that game face on and keep our work lives moving forward and still happening. But there are days, I think, and this is, I starts to get into why I feel disappointed and misanthropic, where I believe, like, did this pandemic stamp out some of the embers of an older fire of, I like going out into the community and being with people, you know, like, we don't go to church anymore. We don't do a lot of stuff that we used to do secular entertainment that's, you know, the postlude version of being out together. Like, I'm just, I don't know if that's where humanity is going. I think we're moving towards staying indoors more and more and more. I mean, even having, I had my nephews over a couple of weeks back. They're real bright kids and they're very, very active, but their online lives are elaborate yeah. to say the least. So here is the next generation. They come to see me play all the time and it's just like, oh yeah, uncle, whatever. He's on stage next. You know, it's just not interesting to them. <laughs> but Video games and Fortnite and buying a fake T-shirt at a fake Travis Barker concert in Fortnite, they're into that. And so I see that there's a value proposition that's being sort of levied by a, a generation that's coming. Who am I to battle against this? Like, I've had a really phenomenal run. And I'm not, this is not leading to I'm quitting or things aren't great. I have a great career. I love it. And I love what I do. But I'm also readying myself for a time when it gets more and more ridiculous what we do. <laughs> Fair enough. So that I'm not like, so I'm not caught surprised with my pants down. Like, what happened? I didn't see this coming. It's like, no, no, no. We all saw this coming. <laughs> yes. I, I saw your pants coming down, but that's a, a different story. Actually, the question was about your last album, and I'm going to just put the answer as pretty good. I oh, like <laughs> My favorite track, I have to say, is Just a Dream. And it touches on some of the themes that you're talking about now that things are changing. Right but you obviously embrace as well. And this is what I'm talking about. You have always been an experimental and experiential artist. And one of the things you did during all this, and I hope you're going to do more, is uh, I don't want to make this a competition, but I had to cancel 15 shows just last week that were going to happen in this calendar year because people aren't ready quite to go out again. And region yeah. to region, there are, uh, I want to phrase this properly, there are, uh, there are more alt-smart people in some regions than there are in others and those regions have to be left off of tours right now. You have Hoxley Night in Canada, one of my favorite puns. I'm partial to puns. You know this. <laughs> I love that you are. You've embraced as much as you can with this format, with Hoxley Night in Canada. You make it an experience. You don't just put it there and park it and anyone can see it whenever they want. It's live yeah. and you should be there live to participate. You even include pets in the show, getting people to submit and write songs about their pets, which Diana would enjoy because she's got a lovely dog named Hunter, who I'm sure she's written right. several songs about. But uh, what do you think of those experiences as an artist? I know we were talking about it as a consumer. That's how more people are consuming things. And you're right. But now as artists, we're competing with Netflix because it's on the same device. So we're trying to create yeah. live events online competing with produced events. What's your experience in that? And do you enjoy it? I loved it. I loved it. It was a huge amount of work. If there's one thing where, you know, you show up to the show and you do a thing you've done for 40 years and you leave the stage and somebody writes you a check. That's like, wow, that's great. I mean, I'm lucky, blessed, amazing. 
But then, you know, to do Hoxley Night in Canada, it took two weeks of prep and work and planning and getting assets together. And I loved it. I had a local cable uh, at my local cable station in Huntsville. I had a TV show, a live TV show when I was a teenager. And I, I love local anything. I love bespoke small town culture. Give me a local newspaper. Give me local TV. Give me local stuff. Give me small handmade stuff. It's just more interesting to me. And I feel like I got to go back and reinvigorate the part of me that um, walked into the McLean Hunter TV station when I was 18 and asked if I could have a show. Now I can have a show. I'm 46. You, you buy some cameras. You can have a show. I'm in charge now. So I have a show and I loved it. I loved it. And you know what? I'm fe- I had to cancel uh, three, three shows got canceled this week for later this fall. And I was planning on putting Hawksley Night in Canada away as it felt like, oh, things are kind of opening. And quite honestly, I'm ready to put the heavy lifting job of putting Hoxley Night in Canada together. I'm ready to put it away. Well, alas, I, it, it might be coming out sooner than I think again. And it's a wonderful thing. I love challenges as I get older. I, you know, I quit drinking two years ago. I and did not in, know that. Oh, okay. Well, now I'm into weird stuff like learning about new things. And like, <laughs> so, you know, is that what happens so when you weird. get sober? You, you learn stuff? Yeah. 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 All of a sudden, it's like, oh, yay, oh, an opportunity to learn. So cool. I might learn how to use this computer if I stop. Yeah, exactly. Drinking. Well, I really do hope that there's more of them. I understand that the, the work reward equation is out of sync for these things. It's tough to get people to buy tickets for it with the same vigor of live shows. But you're a guy who appreciates the process and it shows in the work. So the second that you announce another Hoxley Night in Canada, I will do whatever I have to to fill up the house with whatever the virtual number of tickets is, because frankly, they don't have to leave their houses. That's one <laughs> advantage when you say, hey, could you guys come to a show? Uh, by come to a show, I mean, stay home and turn your computer on. That's all you have to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's huge. I mean, look, I don't go out. I'm a morning person. Like, this is the other thing is that I can't begrudge people this stuff. Why can't there be shows and activities and things to do when I am at my best? I'm at my best between 4.30 a.m. and 9 every day. This is if you want... I'll kick your ass in an arm wrestle. I'll be in Trivial Pursuit. It doesn't, those are my sweet hours. And so as the, and then as we angle more towards after dinner, I'm starting to fade a little bit and requiring like a coffee or something. You know, I feel like even as entertainers, we could maybe stand to get together and, and then decide even, you know, this aging generation that still has live entertainment as part of their fabric. We're going to be the ones who are getting older. And I think we're going to have to have a little tete a tete because these generations that are coming after us that are more screen oriented people who might not be sort of married into the idea of going out to see live entertainment. We're going to have to start going, you know, our audience needs to get to bed. So how about the show? We go on at six. We're done by seven, 12, right? <laughs> I'd go to that. Everybody's home by eight. This is entertainment. You know what I mean? I, true story, saw Joan Rivers do a gala at JFL one year. It was the only gala that they've ever started at 5 p.m. Because that's oh, when her audience uh, has to go to bed. That's probably when Joan goes to bed. But she had all the fire that she always has for every show at that show. It was the bluest, dirtiest 5 p.m. comedy show you've ever <laughs> seen in your life. Because those people were going to be asleep by eight. But man, they were ready to party at five. And that's actually what I say to club owners now. I'm doing some more shows at clubs coming up next year. And I say, look, you want to do an early show with me? Let's start it at 4 p.m. I'll start at 4 p.m. That's when they tape late night shows anyway. And then I'll be home at seven. Yeah. They'll be home at seven. I understand what you're saying. 
You want to know who had this nailed? And you've already brought him up with Stuart, Stuart McLean. I went out on the road with Stuart uh, for uh, w- one of his renowned Christmas tours. I remember looking, we got the, uh, we got the tour on like the tour sheet. And I remember kind of looking through the venues and the dates and the times. And it was, we're playing Victoria on a Monday and it's a matinee. And I thought, well, that'll be something. <laughs> exactly <laughs> to see if that's going to happen. Sold out. 1,500 people. I mean, I know there was all, we always joked when we were on the road that that's the town of the, what do they call the newlywed and the nearly dead or whatever. Newlywed and nearly dead. Nearly dead, yeah. And so I was like, well, I guess it's no surprise. There's a lot of gray-haired folks in the audience with nothing better to do and who are big fans. And But I still think, man, this entertainment within the hours where you feel good. And I mean, I'm out there puking it out sometimes and people are yawning. And I'm like, man, I get it. It is late. Like I am ripping a solo and it is crazy and get in line. This is nuts. And we're all yawning. I got to go home too. Like, see, I love this. May I suggest your next album be less tears, more naps. (laughs) Well, I had a thought to run actually for prime minister on my platform. I would instate a nap ambulance service so that if, you know, when the, because the tires can come out of nowhere and just hit you. So it'd be great if you could just like have an 811 or a 611 and then an ambulance comes wherever you are and you get 20 minute nap in your nap ambulance and then the ambulance rushes off to do your next thing. I like this. I like a new emergency number for people that almost called 911, but just missed it. Sponsored by Sleep Country Canada. I think this is a winning idea. Listen, my friend, you brought someone else for us to speak with today. I had more things to ask you, but... I want to give time to your featured guest as well. I will give a quick word for this, though. You're doing, fingers crossed, you have a live show planned for the Danforth Music Hall here in Toronto, unless they turn it into a condo in the next two months with my comedy son, Ivan Decker, is going to be performing with you. And you're doing the 20th anniversary of your Almost a Full Moon album. Yes. I love that you're bringing a stand-up on tour. We've talked about this before how music and comedy can be married together so well. So, how much are you looking forward? to that gig i mean i hope it blows up quite honestly i know i was crying about oh the show's been selling very well so like i, I think we're going to be just fine i'm investing 100 percent in this emotionally it's going to be great having ivan there obviously i mean it's just as we get older too we like to have opening acts for our own entertainment you know what i mean like, absolutely <laughs> it shouldn't be all about the crowd we we should get some too and i like to have somebody who i know is going to like give the audience a treat he's going to give the audience a treat i'm going to get to hang out with him and i feel like you know you and i had talked about this in regina years ago i've talked to, about this with with um with ivan about the canadian star system needing to make room for comedy comedy yep. is an art form that to me we all can understand its importance on a gut level but i think we need to have a little tete-a-tete here like intellectually like Comedy is a big deal. It's arguably the last important art. It's the only thing you can't lip sync. Can we have more comedy? Can we give more props to comedy? And why have musicians and comedians not been touring together all these years? Like, we both want to be one another. So this just seems perfect to me. We'll be right back. Hey, Steve. Hey, Diana. You know, it's been almost a month since we've had a federal election in this country now, and I don't know about you, but it really feels like we're long overdue for another one. Oh, what's that sound, Steve? 
Well, Diana, if you're the current Prime Minister of Canada and you just can't wait to drop the writ for the fourth time in five years, then maybe you don't need a majority in Parliament. Maybe you just need a good old-fashioned nap in the Hoxley Workman Nap Ambulance or Napulance. Oh, Steve, seriously, that sound is so annoying. Exactly, just like the most recent Canadian election. But the new Hoxley Workman Napulance can take care of that. Sounds fun. How does it work? It's super simple. The moment you get tired and punchy from dodging ridiculously overblown scandals, don't call a snap election that will put you back exactly where you were. Just call the Hoxley Workman Napulance, have a quick snooze, and get back to work. Seriously, Steve, how are you supposed to nap through that noise? I'm I'm not sure. Maybe we should elect Hoxley Workman for Prime Minister so he can explain it better. But that would mean calling another election. Good point. Maybe this is a bad idea. Hi, I'm Hoxley Workman, and I approve this message. See, it is a good idea. At least he made the irritating sound stop. That's something I wish every politician would do. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And now back to the podcast. Let's move on to a section that we like to call Quick Questions. Quick Questions. To break this down, I want you to answer these questions quickly. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I know I don't do much quick. Here we go. You are a multi-instrumentalist. That's not the question. Which, by the way, is selfish for those of us who aren't even uni-instrumentalists. Which (laughs) instrument is your favorite to play? Playing the drums. Still drums, eh? Yeah. Always. And you've only got (laughs) one set of drums that I can see and 400 guitars. 
I yeah, I know. <laughs> you should have way more drums is all <laughs> I'm saying. Your house should be made of drums. Yeah. <laughs> For anyone who follows you on Twitter, they should know this answer, but I'm going to ask you directly anyway. If you had a pet fox, what would you name that fox? <laughs> I would call him or her Drunky. Correct answer. Drunky the fox. <laughs> follow the adventures of Drunky if you follow Hawksley online anywhere. Hawk, if you are commissioned to write a children's book about climate change, what would you call it? Mmm. It's getting hot in here. <laughs> I like that. That is a great thing to call a children's book. I hope that inspires you to go write that book. We'll start writing it right away. I think we hinted at this earlier, but if current Hawksley could go back to 20-year-old Hawksley and give him one piece of advice, what would that advice be? Oh, care a lot less. But also care a lot more. <laughs> you are going to confuse 20-year-old Hawksley. Just partially exploded. It's going to take yeah. one long draw on that thing he's spoken. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. Next quick question. Do you have a lyrical line that you've written in your massive musicography that stands out as your personal favorite? Uh, probably Wave So Hard I Broke My Wrist from Don't Be Crushed Off the First Record. I still think, because you know, I was just a kid when I wrote that. And I, I remember it coming out of me thinking, I think this is pretty good. I like that. Wow. I, like, uh, I like waving hard, breaking wrists. I love that it goes back to your roots. Diana, do you have one? I have a deep cut favorite line from oh, my favorite okay. song of yours, Old Bloody Orange. Woo! Old Fuzzy Peach tell us a story of two naked lovers out testifying. Just, mwah. Thank you. Love that. Diana. Love that song so much. <laughs> Thank you. So no one asked me because I'm asking the questions, but mine is from ah. Ukulele Boy. Kind of like a lady, but with a five o'clock shady. You <laughs> try to beat that other songwriters. <laughs> and this is just a yes or no question. God, I hope it's a yes. Okay. Would you record a Christmas song duet with me called Little Dumber Boys? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> Diana, please you set kidding? that up for us. One way or another, I'm getting on that December 14th gig with Ivan Decker at the Danforth. <laughs> These are the last two, and then we'll turn it over to our second guest today, who has been very patient. These are fill in the blanks. The Canadian star system is waiting to happen. Ooh. Well said. I like and that a lot. being next door to the United States is like. It's like being next door to. We should never have bought this house. <laughs> uh oh. Buyer's remorse. <laughs> I like that. We should have done some asking around the neighborhood, I think, before we laid the dough on the line on this. <laughs> All right, good, sir. Those are my questions for you. Now. Would you please do us the honor of introducing the guest that you brought with you today? Jeremiah Brown. We've become fast Peterborough friends. He is a silver medal winning Olympic athlete. He's written an autobiographical tale about that whole experience. He is a motivational speaker. He's an artist at heart. He builds his own e-bikes. He is absurdly interesting and connected to the truth. And I'm crazy about this guy. Jeremiah Brown, everybody. There he is. Jeremiah Woo! Brown, the four-year Olympian. And he may feel like he's been waiting for four years. Uh, Hoxley talks a lot, but it's all good. <laughs> I enjoy being a fly on the wall. I'm doing okay. <laughs> My first question to you, Jeremiah, is... You're the second Olympian we've had on the show. That's not a question. Uh, the first was another rower you may have heard of named Silken Lauman. And now yes. she's a motivational speaker. She started her own foundation called Unsinkable, which helps people achieve their goals. What is it about rowing and rowers and Olympic rowers, especially, 
that make them not only motivated to succeed, but also share their success with other people? Oh, that's a great question. I don't have a specific answer, but I guess my mind goes to the fact that actually as a percentage of all rowers, we're still probably below 1% doing this thing. So, you know, great company with Silken, obviously a heroic, heroic Canadian story. We just keep rowing. We just keep putting the oar in the water and we're just tenacious. And I guess we just, we insist that you listen to us and we impress upon you our thoughts and feelings about the world. (laughs) That is pretty good. Right off the top of your head. It's like you had that one ready. Your story is different than Silkin's, but you famously went from sitting on your parents' couch, watching the Olympics, to not only being in the next Olympics, but meddling which is an incredible story that's well-documented in book form and speech form by you. Is there a Coles notes to this story that you can tell us? Because I know it's quicker to speak it than do it, but it is a heck of a story. Yeah, well, my speaker agent, her name is Marilyn. And no, (laughs) (laughs) Coles notes is I am another Canadian dude, just like all you guys, well, and dudess. Thank you. (laughs) I guess it started with becoming a young father, actually, in my second year of university, my high school sweetheart and I found out that we were going to be parents. And as much as I'd like to say it was all part of a plan, it was actually a surprise. And I remember sitting in a Swiss LA and it was my, one of my, my son's second or third birthday, just feeling the future kind of narrowing in. And I guess for me, I felt the sense of potential still there. And particularly as an athlete, as someone who grew up playing different sports, never quite excelling at any one in, in particular. And then I saw the, the men's eight win the gold medal in Beijing. And I was, I was on that couch in my parents' basement. And that set in motion this whole journey, which I share with people about pursuing one's potential and really seeing What's it like to go past those points where you've already given up? You know, like what would it look like if I just go a little further now than I've ever been willing to go in the past? So that's what this journey was for me. And then keeping at Cole's notes, skipping to the end, the right teammates, the right time, the right coaches, the magnanimity of Ethan's mom at the right time, like all these people coming around me. And then you as that person trying to have the result of course, courage and and trying to get there. So that's the Coles notes. Well, I am in awe of it personally, and I want to be celebratory about it, but you really make a lot of us look like arseholes here, Jeremiah. (laughs) There are a lot of us who watch the Olympics and say, I I can do that, but none of us do. You're not actually supposed to do it (laughs) because now I'm just the guy who was like, yeah, I could do that. It's all just drugs anyway. I could run that fast if I just put that horse stuff in me, but I couldn't. (laughs) Clearly, I couldn't. One of the things I love is that you were part of the Rowers 8, the rowing team. So you were surrounded by Olympians who had been doing it for a long time. Was there resentment when you started and how did you overcome that resentment? Yeah, there was. I don't know if there was resentment, but I remember Malcolm Howard, who is part of the gold medal winning eight in Beijing who had rowed through Harvard University and was one of Canada's top rowers at the time, even as an individual athlete. I remember he said, or he recalled in the years after the Olympics, he's like, you know, Jerry, you just kind of showed up and didn't give a shit about anyone and didn't show any respect. And, <laughs> and it wasn't actually the case. Like I was, I had reverence for these guys 
of course, that wasn't going to show them because, yeah, it's it's a high, you know, high performance, pretty cutthroat competitive environment. Like everyone's there to try to get to that that Olympic podium ultimately. So I think it took about a year. It took about, yeah, the first year of just being there and putting my head down and earning the relationship through the battles on the water. So, you know, it's like the old adage about you're always best friends after you have your first good fight. You know, you, you knock each other down. <laughs> You brush each other off, you give them a hand back up, and and now you're stronger for it. So it was kind of like that. I had to put a spanking on a couple of those guys before. And, and, you know, of course, they were spanking me most days. But, you know, once we traded a few, then then things were more in line with, okay, maybe this guy could, could help us here and be part of the picture. Are there oar fights? You guys have the big oars that you're carrying around. I've always wondered that about rowing teammates. Oar <laughs> now, fights? Oh, oar fights. I think I recall... Oars undoing the oar lock and, and ripping the oar out of the oar lock in frustration, but not continuing to battery or the actual <laughs> impaling of others with the oar, maybe rushing down the dock at Elk Lake at full speed. That, I mean, that's another Olympic sport in, in its own right. I think. So, no, it was just more splashing, <laughs> splashing water, shouting into the sky. Nothing too drastic. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't want to watch those fights. Oh. I want to watch an oar fight. Uh, let's change gears here. I'm curious. How you two met Hoxley, not a rower that I know of. He's a morning person, but was he out there in the morning in a dinghy and you rode by? How did you two meet? Oh, uh, do you want me to tell the story, Hoxley, or do you want to tell the story? Of course, because it speaks to one of my life passions. I was selling a microphone on Kijiji. Who <laughs> <laughs> <and laughs> shows up at my door, but this wide-eyed, curious fellow with this sort of aura of energy and warmth. I didn't know who he was, but then he, you know, one thing led to another and I found out he was a musician and he said, and I'm like, so, you know, what else do you do for work? And he said, no, I'm like, that's my work. It turned out that, yeah, I mean, I listened to this guy on the radio, even driving to Elk Lake for training sessions. And I think we had a talk about Hoxley's nephew and drumming and the passion of all out pursuit of excellence in a very narrow field and the hours it takes to try to even reach the threshold of what we know as mastery. And I, we just really connected and just, I probably just vibrated on the same wavelength right away. And then as he was leaving my duplex and walking around the corner to his car, I kind of took a little jab. I forget what I said, something derogatory about a CBC appearance or something. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but he took it really well. He took it with a smile and I thought, okay, well, this guy's not, uh, you know, he's not so full of himself that I won't be able to relate to him. And <laughs> I think after that, Hoxley, we probably met and nothing happened for a couple months. And then we, he sent me a text and uh, we went for a walk. And then we've started this Monday morning walk routine where we walk every Monday morning and we just talk about anything that's on our minds or on our chests. It's been awesome. How weird and wonderful is Canada that you can put an ad for a microphone on Kijiji and suddenly one of the country's best musicians might show up at your door. I actually sort of love that about this country. Now, you yourself, Jeremiah, are a musician as well. Uh, what do you play? What do you do? And given your track record with the Olympics, how long will it take you to win a Grammy? I'm going to guess two years. <laughs> Yeah, I think part of the psychology of doing these things is you don't make a grandiose statement like that at the beginning. It doesn't really, doesn't help you as you go through those 
months and months of doubt (laughs) to remember what you said at the outset. But I grew up playing piano through the Royal Conservatory of Music. So I had my piano lessons every Wednesday night with Shirley Bickle out in just outside of Coburg, Ontario. And so I, I played piano for like 15 years and I didn't really ever take it too seriously, but I got into drumming in grade seven. So I play the drums and that's how I, that's, I guess, my main instrument or that's what I love to do. And it's a huge passion of mine. And I don't think of myself as a professional musician by any means, because I don't do it for a living. But I will be honest with you, it's a goal of mine. And Hoxie knows this is to enter that world a little more, probably as a sideman, as a supporting musician. And that's something I would love to do. And, you know, I don't know, everyone's got their own thing, right? So that's my thing right now. And kind of check the athlete sort of ambition. Okay, did that. Let's do something new. And so drumming seems to fit the bill for me. And I can say real quick that you're a phenomenal drummer. And anybody listening out there, if you want a sick, sweet hang on the road with a guy who's going to be, who's nailing it every night, Jeremiah is your guy. This dude has got excellence just in him. And this is one of the reasons I just like being around that bright light. When I went to the door of that Kijiji deal, this like six foot five guy with this enormous, beautiful smile and just like an immensity of like goodness rolling off of him. I'm like, what the hell is this? (laughs) He broke right through your curmudgeonly... Exterior. Yeah. yeah, we had a thing. Something <laughs> happened. That's so Something beautiful. It was I love it. Uh, and listen, to be yep. able to, I, I know from my conversation with fellow musician of yours, I'm not a musician, but a Sarah Sleen Hoxley, who you've toured with, yep. it's always going to be a great conversation to have with you. But you got to be on your game, Jeremiah, to have a conversation with Hoxley to keep up with them because he clearly he goes all over the place. So these Monday morning walks, how much has that led to a different way of thinking for you? Because as a speaker, you're used to putting that stuff out there. But isn't it nice to have someone like Hoxley to listen to on a regular basis? Yeah, absolutely. And particularly in another domain, I feel like we're so similar, but in just slightly different worlds that it's so great to be able to bounce things off each other and, and see so many parallels in the work. And for me, I'm always new to whatever I'm doing, it seems. So I have come to see myself as a performer, just like you guys. I, I, I do these keynotes, I rehearse, I prepare, and I put on a show. And obviously, I'm, I'm using humor, I'm using storytelling and ultimately inspiration, but I'm new to this. You guys are the pros. So I mean, Patterson, I love your show. I, the debaters, longtime listener. And I love the craftsmen behind the people putting out art and putting out entertainment or everything that goes behind that. So what's been great with Hoxley is the mentorship, I would say, he's given me from the performance side of things. So like saying, hey, this is how I did this keynote. This is what I was feeling. This happened. And right away, he's just picking up on, yeah, 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 this, this, that, you know, here's what you can expect. And I feel that catapulted me a few years forward in my own learning and development, right? Some shortcuts and understanding that, yeah, this is what to expect. And actually it's normal that this happened and so on. And so that's been remarkable. And I think that probably represented the first, what do we say, Hoxie, the first four or five walks, maybe exclusively. And now we've digressed into political rants and uh, just emotional outpourings (laughs) and you know, yeah. tears. <laughs> You're definitely a motivational speaker because you have inspired me now. I'm going to, I've got an old pair of cowboy boots that I'm going to put on Craigslist and see whether or not I can get Jim Cuddy to, to come to my door. Yeah, you just have to bait <laughs> You never guys. know. He lives oh, yeah. in my neighborhood, so you never know. 
I found this an interesting description because not only, Jeremiah, do you do a motivational talk about your experience, but it's a great book where you get to expand on the topics that you talk about. And what I love is that you're honest about it, the ups and downs. People see an Olympic champion, they think it was a straight up road. There was some struggle, sure, but it was up and up. And that's that's not the case. The reviews say that it's written with great honesty. And I love this quote. He writes the way that he raced with rage and pain and power. How do you write with rage? And can we teach Hoxley how to cut back a bit? Because now he's about less rage and more tears. And obviously that gets the paper wet. But when you write with too much rage, is that bad? Does it go straight through the paper? How do you do you wreck the computer? I'm very curious. How do you control yourself when you're writing with rage? Yeah, just a lot of jammed up keyboards. I've kind of <laughs> not on the don't put the pen to paper anymore. That didn't seem to be efficient. But I don't know. I, I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, writing a book while. Well, You've written a book, haven't you, Patterson? You know what it's like. It's uh, Yes, I've actually written two books, but I haven't really gotten yeah. really angry yet. You know, the third book, I think, is when I'm going to be all rage every page. <laughs> well, I, I guess, I don't know, the rage is, is probably he's just talking about me trying to be very honest about how I felt at the time. And it was a lot of emotion. You're navigating emotion all the time. And yes, Olympians are seen to be these these galvanized humans with fully formed character and they're just expressing it day in and day out and then having their ultimate moments at the Olympics. And really it's a mess. I remember my teammate, Rob Gitson. I like, I have these, these images frozen in my mind of my teammates walking, looking at their toes step-by-step step, back to their car in the driveways, like haunted in the training fog. And just, why are we doing this to ourselves? And why are we at the mercy of this thing that we don't even seem to control? Like, it doesn't make sense. And in the book, I just wanted to convey the truth as accurately as I could to the experience that was had by me. And, you know, if each of my teammates wrote a book, it would, it would be their flavor. It would be different, I'm sure. I just figured, Jesus, if I'm 26 years old, <laughs> if I'm going to write a memoir <laughs> around the age of 30, boy, I better be honest with those readers. <laughs> I'm not going to get away with it. True story. Now, listen, are you still working with the Canadian Olympic Committee? We can talk about it. I'm no longer working with them. I wrapped up in the spring of 2018, but we can talk about it. Okay. This is something I've been wondering about because once an Olympian, always an Olympian, as far as I'm concerned with, with your way of thinking, you've got that spirit and no one can take that away from you. But when your competition days are over and you don't have that quest to go towards it must be an incredible adjustment to make. And I wonder what that mindset is and how you can help others. It would have to be coming from fellow Olympians, I would imagine, because no one else would know what that's like. Yeah, and I think that's why they wanted in the beginning a lot of athlete input and athlete leadership in the program. And yeah, we're trying to help these Olympians and Paralympians and national team athletes actually transition and prepare for that ultimate transition out of sport. Sometimes you get injured, right? You can't predict when it's going to happen or you don't make the cut this year and all of a sudden you're facing your future and your whole identity is as this athlete. And that's the biggest challenge is it's a question of identity. Even working through the program and even working through my own shifting identity after the Olympics and to trying to figure out, you know, where, you know, who am I now? What am I going to do next? I was lucky I had this great opportunity with the Olympic Committee to lead this program, but it takes time. It's just, like, there's no secret. It just takes time to start filling in your hours and your days with that next thing. And, you know, the best advice 
is just to get started sooner than later. And you have to adopt the beginner's mind again. All that, that the, the emotions, the flushed face, the embarrassment, the feelings of inadequacy like that you didn't think you would have to experience again after you got through grade nine in high school, maybe. And they all, you know, there it is, boom, slaps you in the face. And being through it myself and taking, uh, seeing so many other Olympians and Paralympians go through it, it's really just a matter of time when it comes to that identity shift. In the most recent uh, Olympics in Tokyo, the women really kicked ass, took some names. And would you say that we need to be supporting women in the Olympics more? And, and is that the future of the Olympics? Is the track record that, the, that women are able to create? Well, I think the men and the women are both just trying as hard as they can within their respective training programs and their sport federations. I don't know that there's a specific reason other than that it's great that they had so many great performances, but I think any of those athletes, men or women in those programs would tell you they're there just trying to pursue excellence, trying to do the best they can and put it up against the best in the world. And of course, within every sport, there are cycles going on of development of talents, of that talent reaching peaks and having a glut of talent, let's say, like Swimming Canada does with their women's program right now. It's hard to say what the future looks like. It's, I think it's really hard to predict sort of a macro trend like that. The men will lead the way or the women will lead the way from the next quad, you know, six quadrennials. I think you'll still see quite a mix going forward. But Boy, it's something to celebrate all the performances and the women. I mean, I was screaming when the women's eight won the gold medal. I couldn't believe how much it took me back. It's just moments, right? And I think that we all appreciate. So that's the way I look at it. I have to say, watching the Olympics with my young daughters uh, recently, seeing so many young Canadians, young women, especially on the podium, was very, very inspiring uh, to me as a dad, but also to them, especially the women's Canadian soccer team. Uh, winning the gold medal. That was an unparalleled moment. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I remembered like vaguely seeing Derek Porter, a Canadian rower, win the world championships or he was uh, silver at the Olympics. And I was just this little kid and I looked at that picture and I thought, wow, I mean, that's what an athlete looks like. But it was that moment, probably the age of your daughters maybe. But I think absolutely when it happens for the first time and the kids are watching, who knows if, if that inspiration carries all the way through to that person becoming an Olympian. I think even for me, subconsciously, those images were probably part of my experience growing up. So I think that's a good point, actually. You know, you think about the women's soccer team for the first time, finally. And we were together in London when they won the bronze, and that was amazing. And then to go on and win the gold medal, mm -hmm. how many kids are signing up for soccer? How many girls are signing up for soccer of their own accord, not being pushed by their parents in the least, right? So My seven-year-old watched the U.S. Open final this year because there was a young Canadian woman in it, Leila Fernandez. And right. the second that they presented the check for two and a half million dollars American to the winner, she said, and I quote, Daddy, I think I want to try tennis now. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think it's motivation like that that gets uh, kids into sports. Yeah. Listen, I've taken up a lot of your time, Jeremiah. I want to say thank you so much to you and to Hoxley, thank you so much for your time and for introducing us to the four-year Olympian, Jeremiah uh, Brown. Steve, I'm a huge fan, you know, and I'm so glad you're out in the world. And yeah, I just, I'm crazy about this guy, Jeremiah. I'm glad to have a hang with him, sitting here proud, just listening to him talk going, I get to hang out with this guy on Mondays. Are you kidding? <laughs>
Uh, all right, Hawk, what should people look for next from you? You've obviously got the big show coming up December 14th yep. at the Danforth Music Hall in Toronto. Any other public appearances lined up or online? I know that Celine and I are going back out to do our makeup shows, I believe, in February through Ontario and then out in the east coast of Canada. That's about it for now. I'm being as unremarkable as possible for the rest of the rest of the year. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. We've got to talk about getting someone else to do your marketing. Jeremiah, <laughs> if people want to get the gist of the four-year Olympian, what can they do? Yeah, probably just uh, grab a copy of the book. And if uh, that's your thing, that kind of genre, uh, I think, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And that's about it. Otherwise, You will. <laughs> What's that, HW? Just buy the <laughs> damn book. I love the book. I loved the damn book. It, I, everybody at Christmas got one this year, and everybody who read it was a high five all around. It's it's motivating. It's a it's, I mean, it's exhausting because what this guy did is it's I mean it's beyond remarkable, it, and it's all in the book, and it's captured in a beautifully emotional. And I even think too, like there's some manliness in the book, which I loved, and I like that Jeremiah is in pursuit of of an excellence that is nearly unattainable, and that he's a fighter for the cause of greatness. And that's the thing that I'm crazy about him for. See, Steve, he can do marketing. Yes, he's he just, can market he's others, just tired but of not doing it himself. himself. Which is the point of this show. So perfect. The point of this show is Canadians will promote each other, but we don't promote ourselves. God damn it. Go see Hoxley Workman, buy the four-year Olympian book and go see Jeremiah Brown speak when you can and keep listening to this podcast with Steve Patterson and Diana Francis. Oh God, the self-promo is exhausting. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like the show, please subscribe or follow us for free wherever you get your podcasts. The Canadian Star System is produced by Diana Francis and Steve Patterson in association with the Apostrophe Podcast Network. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit our website at canadianstarsystem.ca where you can find links to their work and their socials. Speaking of socials, you can follow at Canadian Star Pod and at Apostrophe Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our editor and sound technician is Donovan Deschner of Fracture Ephemer Productions. Music by Mark Camilleri of Imagine Sound Studios. Special thanks to Terry O'Reilly, Debbie O'Reilly, Callie O'Reilly, and Nancy Patterson, who is an honorary O'Reilly. And since you're doing such a good job of listening to the credits, there's a bonus clip for you after Steve sings it out. So give it up to these good Because our self-promotion sucks And if they all went away We sure wouldn't miss them do not go. The Canadian Star System Next time you're selling a microphone, please let Steve Patterson know. Because it's entirely possible he needs a new microphone. I could use one. Yes. Thanks, everyone. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.